Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Don Schwartz is an actor and journalist. His book, Telling Their Own Stories, Conversations with Documentary Filmmakers, is available from Amazon. His film reviews and filmmaker profiles appear regularly on FromTheHeartProductions.com, and Don posts new reviews almost daily. He holds B.A., M.A., Ph.D. degrees in psychology and counseling. Dissecting Docs is dedicated to our most precious and beloved filmmakers, the documentary filmmaker. We are here to honor these brilliant creatives who give up their time, energy, and sometimes their freedom to bring us the truth. They are our last vestige of sincere, unbiased reporters who give up their time, their creativity, and put their heart into their films. And Carol, I'd love for you to tell us about our guest. Oh, Claire, we're very fortunate to have a brilliant filmmaker, Jen Cinco, uh, who produced and directed The Brainwashing of My Dad. Um, and first, Don and I will review three important documentaries, and then we'll have time for a really nice discussion with Jen about her incredibly brilliant documentary. So, Don, let's get started with your critique of the first-run feature, Hey Bo, Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. Yes, uh, thank you, Carol. First, I want to say thank you to first-run features because three of the four films we're, re- we're reviewing are from screeners from first-run features, so we couldn't do it without you, first-run. Thank you. Uh, This uh, first film, again, is Hey Boo, Harper Lee, and To Kill a Mockingbird. And as far as I can tell, it was catalyzed by the discovery and the publication of Harper Lee's manuscript at that point in time, Ghosts at a Watchman. And that was written before To Kill a Mockingbird, but it describes events and characters that happened after those of To Kill a Mockingbird. And when, uh, when the, uh, the, the publicity came out about Ghost at a Watchman, it was uh, huge news because as far as people knew, To Kill a Mockingbird was Harper Lee's only book. And I noticed that there was a lot of publicity about the character of Atticus Finch, uh, that people uh, read the book as portraying him as a racist, and that, that took a, a lot of oxygen in the air about the book uh, uh, to Ghost at a Watchman. And uh, so I wanted to take advantage of this review to uh, let folks, remind folks that uh, Ghost at a Watchman was written before To Kill a Mockingbird and it describes events way after it. So Atticus Finch to me is still a hero. Uh, the, uh, the film Hey Boo, Harper Lee and To Kill a Mockingbird came out a few years ago, and it d- talks about uh, essentially the, the, the book, the film, the impact it had, and the person of Harper Lee. And this book, uh, th- excuse me, th- this, uh, this film essentially continues 
that ex- exploration of the book and the impact, and also uh, it also talks about uh, the response to Ghost at a Watchman. And I loved uh, I loved the first film, Hey Boo, Harper Lee and To Kill a Mockingbird, and uh, I loved the second book, the second book, excuse me, the second film, Harper Lee from Mockingbird to Watchmen. And uh, <clears throat> I have I have a confession to make. There is. This is uh, this happens to me a lot in documentary films. Though you think it doesn't make sense, uh, uh, Mary McDonough Murphy, the filmmaker, uh, draws so much information from her interviewees talking about the impact of *To Kill a Mockingbird*, and there is such passion about that film, uh, its role in, in essentially the civil rights movement, and some of the some of these interviewees brought me to tears. It is just just lovely to hear people talking about it, and uh, and so the one thing I want to add about this Carol is that there is a special feature in the film again Harper Lee from Mockingbird to Watchman that's called Coda, and it's more about Harper Lee, and that information is so important that. If I was the editor, I would have put that in the film. So when you see the movie, do not miss the special feature. It's part of the movie as far as I'm concerned. I want to say one more thing, Carol. There's a shot, there's a scene in, again, the second film, Harper Lee, From Mockingbird to Watchmen, that is a clip from To Kill a Mockingbird, and it features Robert Duvall in his first uh, big role as Boo Radley. And Mary Badham is the actor, the child actor at that time, who played Scout, the daughter, Atticus Finch's daughter. And the this, this scene is essentially a shot where, uh, where Boo is cornered and uh, Scout is trying to reach him, and she simply says, hey, Boo. And the way she said it was so touching that, those two words, those two syllables, just for me, in a certain sense, made the whole movie. And uh, so I cannot get enough of, of Mary McDonough Murphy's uh, explorations of Harper Lee and, and her work. And uh, that's all I have to say at the moment, Carol. That's it. I totally agree with you. <clears throat> it was as if she had met a long-lost friend, someone she had known, and she's saying, hey, Hey Boo, like how are you? I know you, and all this—it's just as if all the history were in those two words. It was wonderful. Um, I totally agree. The documentary is full of love, Don. It's a tribute to the 1965 Pulitzer Prize-winning book *To Kill a Mockingbird*, and it's full of people who love the author Harper Lee, and who love and respect the character Atticus. And there's some famous interviewees in the film, like Oprah, who loved the book, and she also was a friend of Harper Lee's. Uh, I just found the documentary full of love, respect, admiration, and awe at the brilliant work created by Harper Lee that has spanned 50 years. It's being taught in schools and is so revered by almost everyone who's ever read it or seen the film. 
And in the documentary, then the interviewees read their favorite part of the book and explain why they love it. And often the filmmakers cut to the film to show us how the book moved to the screen so that admirers of the book read their favorite quotes and then the filmmaker cuts to the clip of the film that repeats the script just that they just read. And the script was written by Hart and Foote, another Southerner, who truly understood that time period, uh, and he understood people in the South. The script closely follows the book, and Harton won an Academy Award for his script, and Gregory Peck, who played Atticus, won an Academy Award for Best Actor, and the film also won for Best Art Direction. And I think that's very true. You felt like you were back there in the South, in the outside, in the garden, playing with the kids, it all seemed so natural, didn't it, Don? Yes, and I and I have a couple more notes. Okay, go ahead. Okay, uh, this film explores more of the relationship between Harper Lee and Truman Capote, and I, I definitely don't want to leave that out because I thought that was important to include, and uh, so that that's about it for the moment. Okay, well, I agree. I found it astonishing that Truman Capote represented Dill in the film and that he actually visited the house next to Harper Lee in the summertime. And he was a good friend of hers. And actually, in real life, the film explained that Lee and Capote were friends and she helped him with research on his book in Cold Blood. And Capote never won the awards that Harper won which was really ironic because Capote set Harper on her course to write this book. He introduced her to his friends and asked them to support her. But can you imagine a small town like this having two brilliant writers? And when you think about it, uh, perhaps it was the fact that the kids used their imagination. They didn't have money for toys. They had to invent games, and they had to become the characters in these games. And they spent time telling stories and honing their craft of storytelling. And I believe that that helped Harper uh, to become a, a brilliant writer. Also, it was beneficial to Capote, too. But they said that Harper began the book outline with what she knew, and then she began to embellish it, and the bottle became alive, and the people, too, it all took shape. Everything uh, began to lead to a deeper truth of the small southern town in that time period. And not many writers took on issues like this before, and before the civil rights movement. And some say that this book helped southerners to become aware of their place in the system and what was wrong with the system at that time. It was it was a terrible system. In the beginning of the, I know because I grew up in Dallas, Texas. Enough said. Um, it was a terrible system. I have a scar on my leg from because I had um, a, a African American friend. Her mother was a maid in a house down the street from me, but I wasn't allowed to play with her. But of course, I did. I had a lot of fun with her. My mother called me one day, and I jumped off the stairs, fell, cut a gash in my leg because I was so afraid that I would get in trouble if she caught me. Uh, and that's it was just in the consciousness in the South, racism was. And that had to be just destroyed. And her book did so much to show Southern people 
how how bad off they were and where they were coming from mentally and that there was another way to think about things. But uh, going back to the beginning of film that they mentioned that another manuscript was written before uh, and that it had been lost and was recently found. So I'm uh, I'm very glad that we have this second book of hers and glad, Don, that you explained that book uh, was written before uh, to Kill a Mockingbird, and it also is, you have to fast forward in time, it was another time period that she wrote about. And uh, so taking all those things into consideration, you would still find Atticus to have become a hero. One of my favorite show parts of that doc was when, at, um, when, uh, Scout was upstairs in the courtroom, and Atticus was just walking past beneath them. And every, uh, the uh, courtroom upstairs was full of black people. Everyone stood up, and they said to Scout, 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 stand up. Your father's passing. Wow, that was great. I loved it. Hey, hey, Carol. Yeah. There's a scene stealer in the documentary, the From Mockingbird to Watchmen documentary, and that yeah. is Harper Lee's sister, Alice Lee. Oh, really? She, yes, because she, she, she appeared in the first film uh, about, about, about Harper Lee, and she, uh, Alice Lee died in 2014 at the age of 103. She was 99 when they were interviewing her for the I guess essentially the two documentaries about Harper Lee, and, and she speaks with a voice as if she'd been uh, chain smoking her entire life. <laughs> That's but true. She, she's totally lucid, and she has a sense of humor and and uh, and a, a, a lot of wisdom coming through. So I, I just loved every time Alice Lee came on came on the screen. Well, great, I did too, because you know she was really. It was painful almost, it felt, for her to talk, but it was very important for her to get the truth out. So uh, now we're going to go to a scientific film, which I really loved, uh, because it is, um, it'll curl your hair. Uh, It's called Antarctica, Antarctica, 70 degrees south. So tell us what you think of that film. Okay, well, this is obviously an environmental film. It is about... Uh, Antarctica, and it's made by a filmmaker named Dina Seidel, D-E-N-A, and her her last name is spelled S-E-I-D-E-L, again, distributed by First Run. And uh, Seidel follows a research team of the Long-Term Ecological Research Project, that's L-T-E-R, at Palmer Station in the Antarctic. And they are based on an icebreaker. They have to come down, get there. They're based on the icebreaker, and then they go from the icebreaker to various places in the Antarctic. And they essentially tell the bottom line at the beginning of the movie. Uh, The Antarctic uh, ice shelf is is melting, and that process is, is irreversible as far as science knows. And they, they uh, call it a geological yellow canary. It's uh, a sign of, of things to come. 
the, the, we learned that the average winter temperature of the Antarctic has increased by 11 degrees in the last 50 years, and that increase is six times faster than the global average. And the presence of wintertime ice sheet has been reduced by three months, and essentially the melting is, is unstoppable. The, the film is so bittersweet because it is so gorgeous. There's no way you can cover the Antarctic without doing it well, and, and uh, then Dina Sidel did it beautifully. And the, the workers, you, you get this bittersweet sense from them. They're really dedicated to, to researching and to learning and to finding out and to passing that information on. And the sense, there's a sense of hopelessness that comes through, too, and the sense of, of dread of what is going to happen. Uh, uh, this is, when it comes to documentary films, boy, I want, uh, excuse me, environmental documentary films, I want everybody to see them because the more we see, the more we'll get involved with, with doing what we can to reverse the, the destruction. Uh, this film is 72 minutes long. But it is so beautiful and so engaging, it could have been twice as long. I would have stayed there and with them and, and seen, uh, just seen more of their work. Yes, mm-hmm. totally agreed. Um, this documentary covers the research of a group of extraordinary scientists, and at the same time it introduces you to the support team and the crew of an incredible seagoing vessel called the Lawrence Gould which is an important character in the film, or it was to me. That was their survival unit, that boat. Uh, In Antarctica, all of the people in the boat, I found, were dedicated, concerned, and they are literally risking their lives to gather data for us. They go into ice-packed waters to gather samples, and on one trip the ice came in behind them and locked them in for a month. Can you imagine knowing that if you don't get out in a short period of time, you could be locked in for a year? I think that's a frightening job to take, (laughs) and that's why I say that they are extraordinary people. Uh, The engineer said that when they go to this south 70-degree point in the winter, there is normally not another ship within 1,200 miles, and he called Antarctica, the last frontier, which he said was a good conversation starter in a bar, and I bet it is. Who goes there? I mean, it's so rare to meet anyone that's been there. And not long into the film, you begin to realize that this work is not for the faint of heart. They do things like take samples from humpback whales to understand the genetics of the animals and what they're eating. This means that scientists get off the strong protected ship, get into a rubber raft in a desolate place in frozen water with ice floating all around you, and harpoon a whale. Reel that back in just to get the sample of the whale's blubber. And scientists will test this for changes in their food or the lack of it. That's why I say that they're very courageous. Uh, The documentary and article also introduces you to the Adelie penguins, which scientists have tagged and are tracking because the food source is getting lower and the penguins are in danger. They're constantly seeing that less sea ice in this part of Antarctica means less food for the penguins, and they predict 
Adelie penguins around Palmer Station will most likely be gone in the next five to ten years. So here are some of the quotes from the film. I urge you to consider their serious meaning and to see this film. Even if we shut down global warming tomorrow, we now have so much heat in the ocean that will come up and continue to melt the ice until it is disastrous. The Antarctic rising ocean temperatures are directly connected to the ones around the United States. In a span of 20 years, the sea surface temperatures along North America have warmed at twice the global rate. Now, 100-year storms like Hurricane Sandy are expected to become 10-year storms, and and they expect that there will be more and more serious threatening challenges. So I think we need to take this information seriously. Uh, It's a brilliant film, and I sincerely thank the filmmaker for taking this voyage and creating the important historical document. And if you're thinking about global warming and you think it is not real, then you need to see this film and Greedy Lying Bastards know exactly what is happening. Uh, I really enjoyed this film, Don, because... You start thinking about it after you've seen the film. You're thinking and thinking, and you say, what did he say? And you can't believe, because there is so much important information in the film that you have to go back and see it again, or that's how I felt, right? Just you were overloaded with shocking information. Yeah, Sadly, I, I wasn't shocked because I, I know the information from other stories but but it, it is it is a must see and, and again the title of it is Antarctic Edge seventy degrees south it it is as disturbing and as beautiful as it is beautiful and and it is a must see film. Okay, I loved it. Well, okay, let's talk about our man in Tehran. What did you think of that film? Our our man in Tehran, the true story of Argo. Well, Argo uh, was a movie. Uh, by Ben Affleck that tells a story about how a small group of American embassy employees avoided being uh, captured and imprisoned in 1979 when uh, the American embassy was overrun by uh, Iranian militants and they were held for 444 days. But a small group escaped that capture. And then the story is that a, a plan was created to rescue this small group from the Canadian, if I believe the Canadian consulate or embassy, whatever the word you call, they're being kept secretly at the Canadian uh, consulate. And so Ben Affleck's uh, film told that story about how they created a faux film called Argo, and they went through all the machinations of uh, pre-production, and they were able to get into Iran as film producers. And the film Argo was a a successful film, and and it told a, an exciting story. And then this film, Our Man in Tehran, the true story of Argo, is a documentary about what happened. And it, it, they interview uh, of can, Canadians, they interview survivors, uh, the, the uh, and one of the most important things that this documentary does is that it. It emphasizes and it clarifies the crucial role that Canada played in the rescue of these Americans. 
And that that when I as I saw that I felt like oh this is one of the most important reasons we need to see this documentary because uh, it seemed very American the the narrative film by Ben Affleck was very well done but it seemed very American. Another thing about Amman and Tehran is that it's made with standard bearing production quality, and it's only 85 minutes running time. And I could have I could have taken a lot more. I guess I've got to the point where. When I love a film, I just want more of it. And, right. yes. uh, and, and the first run, first run features DVD. That includes discussion with the two directors. By the way, I left them out. It was directed by Drew Taylor and Larry Weinstein. And, and so you definitely want to get this DVD and, and hear what they have to say. The the uh, the Q and A at the Toronto International Film Festival. Also, the DVD comes with a playable soundtrack of the score, and so I want to credit the uh, the composers, Arsher Lenz L E N Z and Stephen Scrat S K R A T T. I'm noticing a lot of beautiful music is in documentary films, and so I'm wanting to acknowledge those composers because they they are so crucial to uh, making the film seeable, making it digestible, making it uh, a, a more aesthetic experience. So, uh, and this is this is a fun movie. You get to, you get to hear the backstory of the backstory. Yes, it was excellent. No, it's a brilliant history of the fall of the American embassy in Iran, and a look at how audio cassettes caused a revolution in a country ripe with hatred for the Shah and America. And we hear from people who were involved at the time, and some were working in the embassy, and uh, they were captured, and some who were able to escape and got out with Tony on the Canadian passports. But I really liked hearing that Carter staff said that the U.S. must let the Shaw in to have the treatment for his cancer. And Carter said, all right, I will do this, but what are you going to advise me when the Iranians invade the embassy? Carter knew that this could happen, and no one believed him. So um, it's interesting, too, because it, you know, and they say so in the film, that Khomeini could have stopped the people at any time, and yet he let them invade and take the hostages. So, And the film explains that he who held the hostages was able to achieve political power, that there were several government factions vying for power, and, of course, the one with the prisoners was the most powerful. So it really you really begin to understand what happened and the film covers the involvement of the Canadian government in the escape. Now, it was the Canadian government who issued the passports and they did that only on the request of one man whose reputation was impeccable. To me, it's wonderful to see that amount of faith in your fellow man. What other country would do such a thing without the people being present to give the passports? No. They they trusted the man who said it's it's important, it's valuable, we must help these people, and they're Americans, and they did it. So the Canadians were also sending back valuable information daily on how many guards were at the embassy and where they were stationed so that Carter could work out details for a rescue that he was planning. But even if you think you know what happened in the Iranian hostage situation, you don't. 
you will learn so much. You'll be totally engaged in this excellent storytelling. Um, it's thrilling to hear how things unfolded and how kindness and support of your fellow man surely saved the lives of these six hostages with their daring escape. And I learned the inside story of from the imprisoned hostages. The timing of this film is excellent because Iran is now imprisoning everyday Americans and Canadians on a death sentence charge of corrupting the earth. We need to pay attention to this film because a new hostage crisis is unfolding in Iran, Don. Yes, I understand. Uh, the, uh, the film, Our Man in Tehran, opens up with a, an outline of the United States interventions in Iran. And uh, we're not necessarily the good, di- good guys in that story, but it's <laughs> important to be told it was the context that was needed uh, to explain what was happening with the, uh, the, you know, the takeover of the American embassy and the capture of the employees. Absolutely. Well, let's get to something fun and exciting. Let's uh, tell me your review on Jen Cinco's lovely film, The Brainwashing oh, of My Dad. Yes, The Brainwashing of My Dad. I have my own little uh, subtitle. I call it A History of Right-Wing Media. Uh, when I first uh, read about this film, I, I knew I wanted to see it immediately, and it brought me back to a moment in the mid, mid-'90s when my I was visiting my, my parents in St. Louis, and I walked into the den, and my father was watching t- TV news as usual, but there was something on I'd never seen before. It was called Fox News. And so I sat there just to, just to hang out with my father a bit and watch TV with him. And then after so many minutes, I got up and walked out of the room thinking, oh, that's not Fox News, that's TRC. That's, that's the Republican channel. And... And uh, so I could have been uh, an interviewee in, in Jen Senko's film, The Brainwashing of My Dad, because what Jen has done uh, with uh, co-producer Matthew Modine is to tell the story about how people were taken by Fox News. And she tells her personal story of her father's being taken by Fox News, and then she includes interviews with uh, other people who went through a very similar experience. But I I call The Brainwashing of My Dad a hybrid documentary because she also includes the history of uh, essentially the right-wing media's emergence as a a dominating force in in United States culture and politics. And... uh, and so you get you get a, a lot about what has happened on a very personal level, and on the uh, socio political level. And uh, we essentially we are learn. She teaches us how and why the right wing media machine, and especially Fox News, emerged and it became so successful. And it is a work in progress. It hasn't been released yet. But uh, you can go to the film site, which is essentially the, the brainwashing of my dad dot com, and stay in touch with the film and, and find out how you will be able to see it. It's 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 a film that's both touching, is disturbing, and uh, entertaining all at the same time. Quite true, 
quite true. What we saw was a work in progress, Don. So we, there's more n- new things coming out in the film. Changes are being made. So I'd love for you to ask Jen some of your questions, Don. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I have uh, w- one major question. First of all, this is Jen Senko's with us. Hi. Nice to be here. Yes, uh, uh, and, and Jen, please uh, pronounce the, your last name for us. Senko. Senko. Oh, good. I want to make sure we get it right. S e n k o. Right. And, and so, when uh, when did you begin making the film? Well, in my head, <laughs> probably like fifteen years ago, because um, I just was aware of what was going on with my father and gradually was becoming aware of what was going on in the media. But um, I really started working on it um, like every day, day in, day out, um, as Carol knows, uh, probably two years ago, maybe two and a a half years ago. Um, It was um, just a few years after... uh, my co-director Fiore De Rosa and I completed um, *The Vanishing City*, which was another documentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it was yeah two about two and a half years ago. So Jen, uh, both you and Matthew Modine are uh, called producers, mm-hmm. and also both of you narrate the film. How, how did Matthew become involved? Well, it's really interesting. Um, all of these things were were just uh, there was a lot of serendipity uh, <laughs> with this film um i had a kickstarter campaign and um i hired um alexia anastasia i think that's the right pronunciation of her last name i'm not sure um and she suggested i get in touch with adam rakoff who is matthew mundine's business partner um, to ask him, because Bill Plimpton was running a Kickstarter campaign at the same time, and uh, Adam was helping Bill Plimpton out, and she said, why don't you get, um, see if you could get Adam to um, mention something on Bill's Kickstarter campaign. So that's how Matthew came to see the the um, uh, the trailer, and um the next thing I know is I'm hearing that Matthew Modi wants to be a part of your your film. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. I always admired him. So, um, you know, I was going to say it's a, a, a dream come true, but I didn't even know to have that dream. Um, so that that's how it, it happened that um, Matthew and uh, Adam became co-producers. Mm-hmm. And what are the next steps? When do we get to see it? <laughs> well, um, we have submitted, we are submitting to Sundance the final. Um, and um, we unfortunately, we can't show that until we hear from Sundance. But in the meantime, um, the work in progress, which is very similar to the final, um, which was also shown at Michael Moore's Film Festival at Traverse City, is going to be shown in a couple of film festivals coming up. One is going to be in the Dallas Film Festival, and that's going to be um, October 16th. That's a Friday. And then after that, um, the Alexandria uh, Film Festival. 
and then we're talking to a few other film festivals. Film festivals, it's really amazing. Film festivals have been reaching out to to us. So um, that's been really fortunate that um, people are so interested in the film. But um, that's where we could. That's where people could see it. And um, I also, we also have a, a YouTube channel, actually, where we have a lot of clips from the movie or outtakes from the movie. Um, you know, we have quite a bit up there now. Um, and people could go to the website and click on join the movement um so that they could get updates if they want to know like where it'll be next and what's happening and if and when it gets uh, accepted to Sundance and uh, if it gets accepted to Sundance then we're going to you know bust it out <laughs> and um we'll probably have a New York premiere and an LA premiere and then um you know then then it'll be much much more accessible to people and uh, the, the YouTube channel, how do people find that? Um, let's see. There should be a link on the website to the YouTube channel. But if they want to go to the website and email me directly, I can make sure that they have the link. Um, also, if they, when I do send out updates, um, that YouTube channel is at the the link is at the bottom of the update all of the time. <clears throat> I'll have to make sure. I've just we've just been so busy. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to make sure that that link is at the, on the bottom of the um, of the website or somewhere you know to be found on the website. Mm-hmm. Well, I know Carol's got some questions for you. Great. Yes, I can't wait. Uh, Jen, I have to say, I mean, I loved how you involved us in finding your interviews, uh, and then you took us with you on the interviews. I mean. I felt like I was part of the film. I was seeing your research unfold, and I liked the aha, finding the next person to interview, and you would tell us, and now through this we found so-and-so, and I'm saying, yes, what a great find, and then we're we're off, and we're going to the interview. Then I get to see you in the interview, and I feel like I'm in the interview. There's a one shot where it's like over the cam, over-the-shoulder shot of the filmmaker of the cameraman, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm behind the cameraman watching him film you interview someone. I just love that whole aspect. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I didn't know if it would work, but I kind of felt like, well, since I'm telling a personal story, I might as well tell the story of the making of the film, you know, because making the film was mm, part of the, the, the personal story and, and, you know, getting getting this out there. But, um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, I felt like I was part of the investigation process. It was sort of like uh, you would call a book a page turner. It was like, yes, yes, that's good. I really liked it. This personal approach really worked for me. And where did you get the idea for interviewing on Skype? Um, It's called No Budget. (laughs) 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 Um. We were getting comments um, once the Kickstarter thing happened, and we got over 900 um, Kickstarter backers. The word sort of spread, and people just started emailing saying, this happened to me, this happened to me, and um, it was 
it was emotionally moving for me, um, you know, and I, I, I just, I, I wrote back to everybody, and then I was like, oh, it'd be great if we could email them just to show that this, this is, it's, as it's turning out, it's a phenomenon, and and people need to know they're not alone. People should see what this is doing all over the country. So I just started asking them, um, would you want to be interviewed? And I, I forget how I came up with the idea of Skyping, but I just, I knew they were all over the country, you know. They, I mean, east, west, north, south, and I knew I, could, I didn't have money to fly out there. So... Um, I just thought, I'll try a Skype interview, and I just set up my camera in front of my computer and uh, and did it whenever, you know, we couldn't see them. There's a couple of them that are, that are live, which is, I mean, not live, but, um, you know, not Skype. But um, it's just funny. The Skypes have a certain quality, I think, because the person is looking right at you in a way you know, and telling their story. It's just, I was afraid that the quality wouldn't match up with the rest of the film, but I don't think it matters. I think it just all weaves into this, like, tapestry of different textures and stuff, at least in my mind. It does. Well, actually, it's as if I'm watching the TV and they're on my TV telling me what. <laughs> and it it's, does it's kind of look... Yeah, it's not Fox TV. It's the other TV, the the result of the Fox TV, and here it is. Yeah. And uh, I think that Skype is an integral part of the film. We should yeah. have thought about asking them for money, Jen. It's just a very <laughs> important thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, Skype is good to filmmakers. Skype has supported the filmmakers, so we have to talk about that later. We can't forget that. That's uh, true. How many interviews did you do on Skype? Um, I think we did around 50. I was aiming for 100. Um, um, but just, there's just so many things to do, and, you know, just like a, a volunteer, mostly volunteer staff, Um we just, oh my gosh, it just, we stopped, I think, at around, yeah, I think we stopped near 50. Um, yeah, so it's still, you still get the effect. Well, what I loved was when we you pulled back from one Skype interview, and then we began to see there were 10 faces on the screen, then there were 30, then there were 50. I couldn't believe all of yeah. those little screens on there were... Oh, Skype. the head montage. What is it? Oh, we call it the head montage. <laughs> it's brilliant. Brilliant. Oh, thank you. Thanks, yeah. The... Um, yeah, I, I have to give a lot of credit to my editor, Carla Mandrake, who um, she, she just worked right alongside me, like day in, day out. We just, you know, we worked weekends and whatever. So, you know, a lot of the a, a lot of the editing, you know, is is her. So I'm happy about that. Oh, she that was a brilliant uh, achievement. And the animation, um, Bill Plimpton did a fantastic job. Tell me how you found him. How did that work out? Well, it's really funny. Um, I've actually known Bill 
a long time, for a long, long, long time. Um, I, I think I met him when I was in college, um, but I didn't think to ask him to, to help me because I just, I think one other time I did and, you know, I just, I was embarrassed because I couldn't afford it. But Adam, who works with Bill a lot and does a lot for Bill, <clears throat> he asked Bill, do you have any time to do any animations for us and for Jen? And um, so it's because, you know, of Adam's thinking, like, well, I can I can ask Bill again. You know, he he thought to ask Bill that um, we we and it was good because we just happened to get Bill because Bill's um, always traveling on, um, you know, with his latest film. Um, And uh, so we just we would get him when he just came home. Maybe for a week, and we'd discuss um, like wh- what I what I wanted over the phone, and um, he would come up with ideas, <clears throat> and then I would say, "Yeah, that's that's the idea," and then he would he would say, "Well, I think you know you can say it in a more simple way and a more graphic way." So we really worked together a lot um, on that, and um, um, so yeah, basically. Uh, if it weren't for Adam, I wouldn't have even thought to to ask Bill. So I'm really grateful also to Adam and Matthew for, you know, stepping in and going, hey, Bill, you want to do some animation for Jen? Sure. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, you're very lucky. That was a wonderful. So many lucky things have happened to you with this film that it's like it was. it had to be made as if your angels were working overtime, Jen. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And I, I've said this before and I'll say this again. I just feel like this film is my life's work. Um, like everything in my life from the past, you know, from just regular jobs I've had where I've maybe been a manager of a presentation department or, you know, a secretary or um, graphic design person all of that, and then you know, doing little documentaries while I was working has led me to this. And I think all of um, the skills I learned in life, I, I just have been able to pool all of them. And this, to me, is like the most important work I've ever done. And um, <clears throat> I'm just really, really, really happy I got to make it and show my parents. Oh yes, of course. Oh, your whole family. We all feel like we know them. We know I showed. Them. I showed my parents. Oh, what they say, Jen? They saw, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Um, they loved it, and my dad sort of snickered a little bit when he saw the title, "The Brainwashing of My Dad." You know, he kind of snorted like, you know, like sort of I don't know, like sort of sheepishly or something, and but. They were both really proud of me, and they each watched it a couple times by themselves. Well, sure, just, there's so much, there's so much to get in there. I've seen it yeah. twice, and I've yeah. read it three and four times because uh, not unless you stop and take notes. There's so much to get yeah. in this film. Yeah. Let's just cover a little bit so the audience gets an idea of some of the things. Uh, like that, the the ten Limbaugh lies. I, I'm <laughs> not too familiar with his work, but they were wonderful. I mean, 
how who covered that for you? I can't remember. Uh, Jeff Cohen um, helped with that. Um, he started FAIR, and uh, he was also um, a commentator on Fox News years ago when they had some liberal commentators on. Um, and he and Steve Rendell from FAIR, an, a senior writer at FAIR, um, compiled this. They, they, did, they did like a whole study of Rush Limbaugh and wrote a book like debunking him um, and um, <clears throat> so he gave me, uh, they actually made T-shirts with the, the, the top ten Limbaugh lies. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we chose from most of Jeff's and might have, like, said, oh, wait a minute, this one is really good, too, you know, like l- later ones. Like, I think Jeff's were, a lot of them were from, like, the Limbaugh heyday, maybe, you know, from the 90s to the 2000s. And then we just added, like, a couple more recent ones that we thought were good. But, um, yeah, that's – and then and uh, Matthew uh, narrates that. And uh, I think think he does such a great job narrating it. Yes, he did. did. Yeah. Carol? Yeah. Uh, Earlier, before the show started, you mentioned – uh, Jen's coverage of the uh, fairness doctrine. Yes. Yeah. Tell us about that, Jen. That was really important. The loss of that affected everybody. Yeah. Um, well, the fairness doctrine was, um, I think it was initiated in um, the 30s, the FDR, or maybe it was the 40s. FDR <clears throat> signed it. Um, and it basically um it basically the the rule was that you had to have it had to serve the local community and it had to have diverse opinions on it um Steve Rendell is an expert at explaining it because it's really a lot more nuanced than that but um when Reagan was in um there was a lot of pressure from um big media and all over to um to get rid of that so it was allowed to expire under under Reagan and and that was in 1987 and so at that time that's when um right wing radio just exploded um and you know one year later that's when uh, 1988 that's when Rush Limbaugh went national well, you, you know, um, when, when you when you brought that up in the film, uh, mm-hmm. then I I got it in a way that I never got it before that the, that move to uh, remove the fairness doctrine was one of many moves to make uh, American public's opinion up for bidding, just uh, for auction and for the, to the highest bidder. Exactly, that's a really good way to put it, Don. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, public discourse was, you know, as illustrated in the little gravestone there, you know, basically dead. Um, I mean, the, the talk radio was pretty much right wing to begin with, but then it just exploded. And now today, 97% uh, percent of um, talk radio is um, quote-unquote conservative, which I don't really even consider conservative i consider really radical you, you know i i have this little pet theory about the high ratings for for the right-wing media that yeah. uh, the people are so so angry and and uh so full of hate uh, to a degree 
that they just want to sit down and, and watch or listen to uh, their views than uh, the quote liberal unquote America. Uh, they're not. In, they're into making a difference. They're in, and right. so we don't have time to, to listen to the radio or watch TV. We we have we have some jobs to do. Right. There's thinkers, and then there's not thinkers. Although that might sound a little unfair. Um, I mean, people people do. It's like people do respond to emotion and anger, and we all all like emotion. You know, when we go to the theater, you know, we want to be taken on an emotional ride and all that. Um, but I think liberals um, and progressives tend to be people that want to weigh out what they're feeling, want to think about what they're feeling, and many people just like. Whoa, this feeling, you know, it, it's addictive. It's it's something it's like a chemical reaction that that happens and they want to they it's stimulating in some ways and they want to keep feeling it. So and you know, especially if there's fear involved, they want to um you know, you get hooked into fear. So um yeah, I think you're right about that, Don. And then there's the trap. We yes. have to watch out for hating the haters. You can get yes. trapped into that. Mm. Hating the haters. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, it's just funny. It's like, to me, the whole purpose of, well, one of the big purposes of right-wing media is to convince ordinary people, to the 99%, to vote against their own self-interest. Oh my um, gosh, you're so right. I saw you say that, and and I, in as far as voting goes, sometimes I will read all the material I can, and then it's so obvious to me that the of what to vote for, but it, then it can be skewed on the advertising, and unless people go beyond what they see on television and really research it, they can vote against themselves, just like you said. Right. I mean, how are, this might be controversial what I say, but how are, like, corporations and the, you know, Uber billionaires, how are they to get ordinary people voting on their side? Well, they kind of have to color um, and shape people's opinions and present their views in a way that seems like it's really the views of those that are, um, you know, that are not like them. Um, And so you have, like Don said, the haters, you know, hating the hated. So you have um, them telling you, you know, these are the takers and you have to, um, you need to hate the takers because it's it's their fault when they don't realize that, you know, this country is the there's a vast um, difference between the wealthy and the, the vast inequality, you know, um, bigger than there was in the robber baron days. So, and I I, I believe that one of the reasons for that. It's because so many people have been snookered into voting for that, um, you know, that that oligarchy or 
you know, whatever it is. Snookered is a good word. <laughs> oh, it's a good oh, word. Me. <laughs> now, well, let's go to Dr. Kathleen Taylor's brainwashing by force and by controlling the information <laughs> given to the person. Right. Uh, all of this information that pushes the line. Dr. Taylor really got a hit home with me. Tell us yeah. some of the things that she taught us in the film. Well, you know, when I first um, called the film The Brainwashing of My Dad, um, I did get a lot of heat uh, for, for that title and um, from liberals, like, oh, that's too strong, and, you know, you're going to turn people off. But actually I found that many people responded to it because that's what it feels like. And then once I got into uh, the movie and doing the interviewing and met Kathleen Taylor and read her book, I realized that, oh, it's not so far off. Um, so she talks about um, there's two ways to think about brainwashing. There's um, brainwashing by force, you know, like we're familiar with, you know, where people are in camps or they're browbeaten, um, you know, into believing something. Um, and um, <clears throat> there's brainwashing by stealth, which is where uh, it's not so much that they're forced to believe, forced to believe stuff. It's that all the information that comes at them is pushing a line. Like that's the only information, and so you know there's no alternative in terms of information. And so if you control, she says, if you control the information that goes into the brain to a great degree, you control what that brain is going to do, you know, or or in terms of what that person's going to believe. Um, So um, that that was a revelation to me because I think it seems obvious that um, somebody, these people that, a lot of these older people I found just have, like, for instance, Fox News on or, like, with my dad, you know, when he was into his Rush Limbaugh days um, all day, you know, or three hours a day. Um, and um, so it's sort of like brainwashing by stealth because that's the only information that's going into the brain. So that was a real revelation when she talked about that. Um, and she she um, also talked about the five five factors that were yes involved to create in that. belief change right yeah um basically um isolation you know which cuts the person off from other sources of information and control you know so the brainwasher if you will whatever has control of the information um create uncertainty um you know, it, it it does so by attacking former beliefs, you know, and repetition. And then the the fifth one is strong emotion, you know, because that emotion, like we were talking about earlier, is just, um, it's seductive, you know, it's addictive, it's stimulating, you know, and in some sense it's exciting. So, um, yeah, she was she was a real revelation to me. Dr. Taylor. Yes, because she made it so clear. Uncertainty, she said. So the brainwashing agency is leaving the person unsure of what they believed before. And right. they can't even 
remember. Right. Uh, it is so well done by the Fox News Agency and other places. I mean, yeah. uh, it's an amazing situation. And it you really have, is. You did such a good job with this film. And you feel like you're, you're Alice in Wonderland. You know, what did I just drink? What's in my teeth? <laughs> I'm going down a rabbit hole here. But it's all true, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Because you um, you gave us the scientific uh, formulas when you brought us doctors like Hesley Taylor and you brought us authors and credible people to listen to so that, that you brought the fairness doctrine back for us in this film. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the other thing was the Telecommunications Act um, that happened in 1996. They, they didn't used to allow... Um, you know, ownership to be um, condensed. And then um, when they revised that, then they allowed, um, you know, you could own like as many radio stations or uh, TV stations or newspapers that you like. So um, that didn't help matters any. <laughs> no, that really pushed it to the right, didn't it? According to your uh, animation, was so well done. Oh uh, yeah, Bill's great. Yeah, and it makes it fun because <clears throat> I know that the subject, like the history, is uh, could be a little bit dry, and so we really tried hard to, um, you know. The animations, I think, really help that and, and kind of also assist you in understanding what they're saying. So, yeah, but the, but the history is necessary to set, to tell. Oh, I think your choice to, to synthesize, to integrate your deeply personal story with this overarching story of what's been happening, happening in American history was, was just brilliant idea and then perfectly done. Um. John, thank you so much. And I love your subtitle, A History of Right-Wing Media. I might use that. Okay. Good, good. Yeah. <laughs> well, now, here's we want to know about marketing. So maybe that's the second show. In five or six months, we can come back to you and say, how's it going? And how did you get on this show or that show? Because I have a feeling this is going to hit it big. Yeah, um, yeah. I've already been on a couple of radio shows. It's it's fun, except when my voice gets scratchy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you'll be on some TV shows, and I think that you'll have a lot of people really loving this film. Well, I know one thing. I know that um, a lot of it resonates with a, a lot of people, and that's what matters to me is that so many people were affected in the same way my dad was affected and so it's I just feel like I'm just really glad that um, it, it is getting some attention um, you know I, I just I believe I believe in it I believe it's a story that had has to be told Oh, I think it's a very important historical document see because you have documented what's going on now in the hopes that we can change things, and right. let's and let's say it does that it makes a difference. And ten years from now, people will look back and say, "Oh my gosh, I don't believe that was happening." That's right. what we want to really be the end result here. Right, and in the in the 
the latest version, in the newest version, um, the final version, it will have um, some solutions. Just a little bit of like a couple of the people just, you know, giving some solutions. Because I I always miss that in documentaries, like if the documentary is a real bummer and... um, you think, well, what what can you know? What can be done, or what is being done? I, I always think that that's kind of like a relief to put that in, a little bit of that in. It's a very important aspect. So, okay, well, we'll be looking forward to that, and I and put us on your marketing list so we can follow your successes. I'm sure there'll be many. Thank you, Carol. Thank you. Thank you, John. Yes, I- I would like to, uh, uh, Jen. Would you just one more time let our listeners know how they can reach you and your your uh, social media information? Just one more time for them. Oh sure. Um, well, there's a Facebook page um, called uh, the Brainwashing of My Dad Movie, um, and then you know I have a personal Facebook page as well, Jen Senko, and there's the website. Um, the brainwashing of my um, There is a YouTube channel. Um, they could probably find the YouTube channel because the trailer is also on YouTube. Um, um, and um, also, they could email me from the site, uh, from the brainwashing of my dad website, and they can join up for updates um, by clicking the join the movement button. And um, you know, I can let them know. Well, they'll find out through updates um, what's what's happening with the film next. And they can also email me that way, and I can let them know the exact address of the YouTube channel. Great. Wonderful. Yes. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Carol. Thank you, Don. Thank you, Thank Claire. You. You're welcome. Okay. All right. Good luck. Be well, everyone. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.